The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. I want you guys to, to think about this for a second just as we start. Um, you're scheduled to go into the doctor for your annual checkup. My wife and I just did that um, just yesterday, actually. We went in, we were going to get some, some blood tests done just to see, are we healthy? Are there things that we can work on, right? So just say you go in, Get your annual checkup, get some blood tests drawn. You're sitting in the little room that they make you sit in forever. Don't know why they do that. They're probably just out there playing solitaire or whatever while you're sitting in there for hours. But you're sitting in there, you're not thinking much is going on. Finally, the doctor comes in after forever. He comes in and he says, I got some bad news for you. Unfortunately, because of choices that you've made in your life, whether it be health choices, whatever it may be, uh, it looks like your blood tests aren't good. It looks like you're actually going to cut your life short by 30 years. How would that make you feel? Your heart sinks. Your stomach feels sick. You begin to think, what a waste of life. 30 years that I'm not going to get with my kids. 30 years I'm not going to get with my grandkids. 30 years I'm not going to get with my wife. Here's another scenario. You're sitting in the courtroom. You know that you're guilty. You know that you did something wrong. You're being judged. The, the, the judge is about to make a decision that's going to affect the rest of your life. The gavel hits and he says, guilty, 30 years without bail, 30 years mandatory minimum sentence in prison. You're guilty. How do you feel about that? 30 years of your life, right? In prison, 30 years of your life, not living your life, not being with your friends, not experiencing freedom, how would that make you feel? That seems horrible, doesn't it? It seems horrible. Now, setting that aside for a minute, I want you guys to think about your 24-hour day, okay? We each have 24 hours in a day. That's how we split up time, right? Uh, in 24-hour day, almost everyone in this room most likely works, Okay, and in that amount of work, usually, typically, the average amount of work someone works is about eight to nine hours. Would you agree? Eight hours is probably the average, but by the time you factor in other things, um, commuting, maybe a little bit of overtime, boss wants you to stay late, whatever it is, you spend about nine hours a day working, okay? Then you uh, come home and do more work, usually, uh, if that's... If, realistic life, okay, you come home, you take the trash out, you vacuum the floor, you sweep the floor, you change diapers, whatever it might be, uh, you do more work, you do uh, yard work, you do things on the weekends that, that would be considered to be work. So realistically, we could say that about 12 hours of your day is spent on work. Would you guys agree with that? Then eight hours of your day is spent doing what? Sleeping. What a great use of time. I enjoy it more and more as I get older. So Help me out with the math. 12 plus 8 equals, that leaves how many days, how many hours in the day? Four hours in the day. We only have four hours in the day left over for us, for leisure. And I don't know about you guys, I don't get four hours. <laughs> My wife and I don't get, we have two babies, so we're changing diapers until 10. Um, we're trying to, you're trying to work on that, but, but I don't get four hours. Most of us don't get four hours, but let's just say you do. Four hours a day. Okay, if you do the math on that, that means that one third of your life is spent working. One third of your life is spent working. Now, one poll says, one statistic says that 70% of people in the world hate their job. Do you believe that? 70% of people in the world hate their job. Either they hate it or they just see it as a waste of time. They see it as a means to an end. Something I do so I can get to the weekend. Something I do so I can get off at five o'clock and go home and watch TV because it's so important that we do that each day. Um, it's, that's how the majority of the world, people in the world see that. So if 70% of the world see 30 years of their life as a waste, then the two stories I told you in the beginning aren't really far from being true for us, are they? If we see 30 years, and assuming we live 90 years uh, as an average or whatever, if we see 30 years of our life as a complete waste of time, that's pretty sad. That's pretty depressing. In fact, that's pretty bleak. And I think for the majority of people in our country, that's exactly how they see it. Is this really what God wants for us when it concerns work? Is it really God's desire that such a huge chunk of our life would be, quote unquote, wasted? Should life consist of one-third sleeping and one-third doing something we absolutely abhor? I would think not. So we're doing a biblical worldview series. If you guys have joined us, anyone here for the first time for the biblical worldview series? Anyone new? 
Uh, liar. Okay, you guys are new. Awesome. Welcome. Carrie, first time. Okay, great. Fantastic. So we're doing a biblical worldview series. What this means is a biblical worldview is, means that it means that we are trying to view the world through a biblical understanding of it. Okay, so everything that we've looked at so far has been subjects that have to do with our world. We started with abortion. Uh, we looked at how do we view abortion through the Bible. We've looked at race. We've looked at human sexuality. We've looked at suffering. Um, we've looked at politics and government. Next week, we're going to look at entertainment and TV, movies, those kinds of things. That should be interesting. Um, but this week, we're going to look at work through a biblical worldview. We're trying to understand the things that make up our life, the things we hear about on the news, the things that we're constantly listening to, talked about on the radio or on shows or in magazines, the things that we're faced with. We're trying to understand what the Bible says about those things. And what greater of a thing to talk about than something we spend a third of our life doing, which is work. Now, I have to say that I personally think the church in general has done a huge, huge disjustice, if that's even a word, misjustice, whatever it is, um, to the concept of work. I don't think that's a word, disjustice. It's okay. Injustice. Thank you. Appreciate that. Crowd participation. The church has done a horrible job with work. A horrible job. Usually what happens in the, the, the teachings that I've heard historically from churches is it sort of tries to find a few spiritual things about work. Well, maybe you can share your faith with non-Christian uh, coworkers. Yes, that's true. And, and then everything else sort of gets thrown away. It's kind of like, have you, guys have, have you guys ever juiced uh, like apples and oranges and things? You throw it in the juicer and you get this tiny little bit of juice and all of this stuff just goes in the garbage. You know what I'm saying? That's why we didn't juice, because it was just a waste of money. I'm like, what about all the fiber, right? This is what people do in the church technically, usually with work. They say, oh, there's a few things you can redeem about work. You could share the gospel. Um, you know, you could be a good person. Maybe people will hear about Jesus. But everything else is just sort of goes in the garbage. All the hours that we spend doing menial, seemingly worthless things just kind of go in the garbage. That's not the way that it's supposed to be. Uh, John Mark Comer, one of the, uh, a pastor up in uh, Portland at Jesus Church, he says this, he says, In the church, we often spend the majority of our time teaching people how to live the minority of their lives. That kind of convicted me as a pastor, and I read that. Um, I was like, wow, that's really true. A lot of times we spend the most time trying to tell you guys how to operate in here, when the reality is, is that most of your life is spent out there, right? You guys are in here maybe once, twice, Maybe three times a month on a Wednesday, maybe three times a month on a Sunday. You add that up, that's a pretty small uh, comparison to the amount of your life you spend out there. We need to be telling you guys and teaching you guys biblically, not what we think, but what God says about how to operate within a work environment and what the point of work is. And that's the whole point of tonight. Now, I think a good place to start would actually be to pray. So let's do that really quick. God, I just invite you into this room tonight, Lord. I just pray that our hearts would be interested, God, to, to see how you can redeem something that seems so worthless in our lives. God, I pray that you would speak through me even now, that I would be able to bring clarity of thought, Lord, that I would be able to bring the gospel into something that seems so worthless, Lord. I pray you would give great worth to this subject of work, Father. Please, Holy Spirit, come into this room and teach us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So my, my first thought when I was preparing for this, and this, is, this teaching's been fun for me, I've been working on this for a couple weeks now, and just thinking about it and talking to people and having conversations, the first thing I was thinking about is how in the world did we get such a low view of work? How in the world did we get to a place where, I don't know about the older generation, maybe not my grandpa's generation, but definitely my parents, and for sure my generation, loathe work. We think of it as something that is absolutely ridiculous. We don't wanna do it, we don't wanna work hard, we want things to just be handed to us. How do we get to that point? You look at our history, it's interesting because our country was actually founded on this idea that everyone should have the means and opportunity to pursue happiness, right? That everyone should have uh, the, the opportunity to work hard, to, to uh, start a business, to provide for their family, and that was what our country was founded on. Because people needed opportunity. People wanted a place where they could have opportunity to, to work hard and to see the results of it. But generation after generation after generation, that started to deteriorate, deteriorate, started to de-evolve, and now we're in this interesting generation called, which I would call the generation of entitlement, okay, where we no longer want to work hard for things anymore. We just want them given to us, okay? My generation is the biggest generation of entitlement. We just want things given to us. We don't want to work anymore, but what we do want 
is we want to play, and we want to rest, okay? And so all of life, especially seeming for my, my, my parents' generation and the generation even before that, obsessed with retirement, obsessed with relaxation. I just want to work so that I can rest. I just want to work so that I can play. And the, the whole thought process is I want to get it done as fast as I can, make as much money as I possibly can so I don't have to work anymore. It's kind of this, this is evil, work, or, uh, work is evil, and laziness is good. Work is evil, and leisure is the bomb. Okay, weekends are good, weekdays are bad. That's kind of the thinking in our country, and it's really too bad. It's really not what the Bible says at all. Now, I don't think that the whole reason why work is so misunderstood in the church, or even just by our generation, is because we're spoiled. I think that's part of it. We're spoiled. Okay, we are spoiled. We have not worked very hard for a lot of the things that we enjoy in our country, and we take them for granted, but it's bigger than that. So what I want to do with you guys, if you'll follow me on this, is I want to look at the theology of work, the biblical worldview of work. I want to look at the scriptures and see where did it come from? What's the purpose of it? Why do we have to do it? And is it worth anything? Is it valuable? So where better to start than Genesis chapter 1? If you guys have your Bibles, let's open them up. Genesis chapter 1. I understand you guys were there last week with Vern, which is great. You guys will be familiar with it. But if you have them, open them up. If not, it's up on the screen here. Genesis chapter 1. Let's talk about the design of work. It says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You guys ever heard that verse before? Okay. In the beginning, God what? Okay, so the first thing that God does that we learn about in the scriptures is God works. God is a workman. God is someone that loves to create, loves to build. So why do we work at the biggest, most zoomed out answer of that? It's because God works. We're made in the image of God and God is a workman. Verse two, the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Two things here. The first thing is, is that the earth was without form and void. The earth was without form and void. What that means, means is that when God started, he started with a formless nothing, <laughs> for, for lack of a better term. He started with just raw material, with, with nothing, with, with, uh, with an open void, and he took that open void and he began to cultivate it into something specifically. The next six days, he, he began to create waters and, and land and animals and humans and all kinds of things, the things that we see in the universe. So God starts with nothing and he turns it into something. So why do we work best when things have order and process? Or pardon me, uh, why, do we, uh, why do we love to problem solve and create and make things better? Uh, primarily because God did. Why do we like to take something that's broken and something that's seemingly nothing and turn it into something special? Because that's what God does. We're made in his image, that's how he works, and that's how we desire to work. So verse four, God saw the light, that it was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. So God separates the dark from the light. What he's doing there is he's creating order. He's working to separate light from darkness. Now, why do we work best when things are in order? As I said earlier, why do we work best when things are in order, when things have process? Because God does. God is organized, okay? He works hard and has worked hard since the beginning to separate dark from light, land from water, to create things in a specific order, and he takes pleasure in that. And then in verse four, God saw that it was good, just like it says in every single time that God creates something, he stops and he says, this is good. What I've created is good. What he's doing in that moment is he's stepping back and saying, I just kind of want to enjoy really quick what I just did. That's part of the, the pleasure of working hard. That's part of the pleasure of putting yourself into something is being able to step back and say, look what I just made. Okay, I, I, I put lots of hours into these notes and sometimes I trip all over them, but but sometimes, you know, after 40 hours or whatever I put into some of these notes, I step back and I just kind of look at them and I'm like, whew, <laughs> okay, it's all organized, it's how I want it, I've put thought into it, and I take a little bit of joy in getting to kind of stop and say they're done. When I hit print on my computer and it comes out of the printer, I usually make some sort of a noise of relief. My notes are done. Okay, now I just got to work on them, just got to memorize them. And there's joy in that, in the finishing of the work when I can step back and say, okay, I did it. 
I remember as a kid building Lego things, you know, like giant castles and stuff out of Legos, and I remember wanting to set them in a place where I could see them from my bed when I slept, because once in a while, I just kind of want to peek my eye up and be like, oh, that's so cool I made that, right? Seems arrogant. But, you know, we enjoy enjoying what we made, okay? When you put your work into a business, or you put your work into a project, there's nothing better than getting to step back and say, look, Look what I made, and that's exactly what God does. Why do we do that? Because God does it. He, because we're created in his image. What work is woven into the very being of who we are. It's not something that can be separated out. It's not something we just have to do because that's the way it is. It's something that is who we are. We are designed to work, and not just to work, but to work hard. We have to see work as not something we are forced to do, but something that we were created to do. You guys catch that? Okay, we have to see work as not something that we're forced to do. I have to work because my boss says to, and I have to work because the man says to, and I have to work because otherwise I can't do the fun things I want to do or eat or put food on the table. No, you work because it's something you were designed to do. Let me explain that a little bit more. A lot of people hate working because they feel like it, it cringes it encroaches, man, my, my vocabulary is just jacked tonight, encroaches upon their freedom. People feel like work is hard because it's getting in the way of them enjoying the free life that they want or deserve. Now, is freedom not having to do anything you don't want to do? Or is freedom doing what you were designed to do? Okay, let me say that again because this is huge. Is freedom not having to do anything you don't want to do or is freedom doing what you were designed to do? Let me give you an example. There's a fish in the ocean, okay? Now that fish is free to go on land if that fish wants to, okay? So the fish jumps out of the water and begins to flop on the land. Now, is that fish more free in the water or out of the water? It's more free in the water. So even though it has the freedom to be outside of the water, it was designed to be in the water. Once it's in the water, it's gone. I mean, it's fast. It thrives in the water. That's what it was designed. So you guys are free to not work. I'm free to not work for a while. But in reality, I was designed to work. So to really experience freedom is to walk in the things that God has designed us to do specifically. Tim Keller says this. It should be up here. Freedom is not so much the absence of restrictions as finding the right ones. Those that for with the realities of our own nature and those of the world we live in. Work is not a burdensome command. It is an inversion to freedom. That's out of a book called Every Good Endeavor, by the way, by Tim Keller, which is fantastic on the subject of work. So in other words, work is something that is about finding the right restrictions. God has designed us in a specific way and we were designed to work, which means we thrive when we're working. We thrive when we're doing something. Go into a nursing home and talk to someone that, that sits all day in a nursing home, not because they want to, but because they have to, and watches soap operas or whatever, plays board games, and say, you know, you don't have to do anything. You get to just relax and take naps and play board games or whatever it is that you want to do. Are you happy? Do you feel fulfilled? And I guarantee you 99% of them would say, no, I'm miserable. I'm miserable because I'm not doing anything. I'm not serving anyone. I'm not giving anything of myself. It's just too much time. Ask anyone that's in any kind of institution, a prison, anything. All you have to do is just lay around. You will go insane. Whenever we have a baby, I take a couple weeks off. My wife starts laughing at me in my last week because I just start going crazy. I got to go. I'm like, can I go buy a stroller? Can I go get groceries? Can I do something? I got to go conquer something. This is how I'm designed. We're all designed to create. We're all designed to give of ourselves. We're all designed to build things. And freedom is operating within those constraints. Okay, I'm free. I'm free to not exercise. But if I don't exercise, my body is not going to make me feel very free anymore because I'm not going to be able to do anything. I'm free to go eat burgers and McDonald's every single day. But if I do that, I'm going to become a slave to the fact that I can't move. <laughs> right? Freedom would say I'm not going to do that. If you guys get the point, good. So, if work is mandated and valuable and healthy, if work is really part of who we are, then why is it so hard? 
Why is it so hard? If work is such a good thing, if God made it and God designed it and we're supposed to be doing it, then why, when my alarm goes off at six in the morning and I put my feet on the floor, do I just want to cry? <laughs> I had a roommate, man, it was so funny. I had a roommate years ago that he had to get up at six in the morning and go work at Les Schwab and he hated his job. And his room was right next to mine. He'd always get out of bed and flop his feet on the ground and he'd just sit like this for 10 minutes just dreading life, thinking in every possible way, if there's any way he could get out of work, how much he didn't want to go to work. It was just miserable for him. If work is so great, then why is it so tough? Then why do we have to deal with bosses that are down our throat all the time? Why do we have to work with uh, companies that want to abuse us or use more hours than we could, should possibly give? If work is so great, then why is it so tough? Well, that's easy. Genesis chapter 3. If you guys have your Bibles, it's up on the screen. Genesis chapter 3. Let's continue in the Genesis account. Verse 16. So man has fallen. God put them in the garden. They ate of the fruit. You guys know the story. They ate of the fruit. They were not to. Verse 16 in chapter 3 is God's indictment against them. Is God saying, this is the consequence for your sin. This is the consequence for you choosing yourself over me. Here's what God says. First he speaks to the woman in verse 16. He says, to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. That's a whole other sermon. Verse 17. And to Adam, <laughs> and to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife. No, that's not an excuse to not listen to your wife. And have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the what? Help me out. Cursed is the what? the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. This is why work is hard, because of sin. See, there's a progression here you have to understand, though. A lot of people and I do it myself, jokingly say, oh, I have to go to work. Darn it, Adam. Yeah? Darn it, Adam screwed it up, and now I have to go to work. That's actually theologically incorrect. <laughs> work came before Adam screwed it up, right? Work is not the fault. You don't have to go to work because Adam sinned. That's not like, oh, God's like, oh, you blew it, now you gotta go to work. Now you were just gonna take naps in the garden. No, we worked before the fall. But what did happen was the fall put a stain on work itself. The fall messed up work, just like we talked about with sex, just like we talked about with marriage, just like we talked about with, with bearing children, with raising children, with whatever it is. These are all things that were good and are still good, but are in a fallen and a broken state of disrepair. Does that make sense? So work is good. Work is designed. Work is woven into who you are. It's in your DNA to work. But it's fallen, and work is now thorns, and it's thistles, and it's sweat, and it's toil, and it's hard, and it's discouraging, and it's really tough. Whether that's raising kids, or whether that's steaming coffee, or whether that's digging holes, or running a business, or doing a ministry, whatever it is, it's going to be hard. It's going to be hard, but that doesn't mean you're not designed to do it. Okay, just because marriage is hard doesn't mean it's not good. Just because raising kids is one of the hardest things you'll ever do doesn't mean it's not amazingly valuable, right? It's just in a fallen, in a broken state. Now, I want to go a little bit deeper with you guys on this. Because, yes, it's important that we understand we were designed to work. And, yes, it's important to understand that we work because God works. But when you go to work tomorrow... That may not be quite enough to say, this is good. This is valuable. Yeah, okay, God did it. Yeah, okay, I'm designed to do it. But it still stinks. It still feels like it's not valuable. So I want to go into a little bit deeper. We have to have a bigger reason than those, I believe, to bring value into what we do in our jobs. Dr. Gary Bashirs, who's the head of the theological, theology, uh, man, I, head of theology at Western Seminary, can't even say theology, I probably shouldn't go there. Um, 
He's the head of theology at Western, where Jeff goes. Um, phenomenal guy, super intelligent. This is what he says about work. He says, and we're going to come back to this, so if it's confusing, don't worry. Work is the gracious expression of Yahweh's creative energy in service of others to create shalom. Okay, I want to unpack that a little bit. Work is the gracious expression of Yahweh's creative energy in service of others to create shalom. This is a huge statement. So I sat down with some friends uh, a few days ago to do sort of a focus group for this teaching. I just wanted to ask questions and, and hear their opinion about work and, and, and sort of play investigator a little bit. So we sat around a table at six in the morning. They were gracious enough to, to meet me there in the morning. And, and I just was asking them. So one of the guys has, has a vocation. He has a job that he loves and he's been doing it for a while. The other guy's going to school, pursuing vocation. Uh, they're both young guys. And I was just sort of like asking them, what makes a job fulfilling for you? What about a job makes it fulfilling? And their answers were pretty succinct. And it, and it really was this, well, a job feels fulfilling when it seems like it helps people. Like when it seems like it benefits culture, when it seems like it moves things forward or makes things better, okay? Well, that, that's probably an answer most of us would agree with, okay? A job is fulfilling when it does something that benefits people. Now, it seems easy to find value in jobs that obviously help people. Okay, so you're a doctor, Great, I'm sure that feels very good because you get to show up and you get to help people and you get to nurse people back to health and help them to be healthy, which is ultimately social justice. You're, you're restoring wellness and health to the world. Um, you're a school teacher, like Jeremy, who just sat down, okay? Jeremy's a school teacher, uh, to put him on the spot. Uh, it's, it's easy to find value in that because he's helping kids, he's cultivating minds, he's bringing light into a dark school, right? Or, or maybe you're a pastor, or maybe you're a counselor. You say, well, those jobs... It's easy to understand how those can benefit the world, and I can feel good about myself at the end of the day. But what about everybody else? What about everybody else? So we're an interesting, in the West we're like obsessed with vocation, right? We're obsessed with finding the thing that makes us happy. I need to do the job that makes me happy. But the reality is not that there's necessarily anything wrong with that. I get to do the job that makes me happy, and I'm blessed. But the reality is, is that for 99% of the world today, and especially in history, People don't get a choice, right? You do the job that your dad did. Your dad threw nets in a fishing boat, and his dad threw nets in a fishing boat. So you get your hands calloused, you get out there, you get seasick, you throw nets in a fishing boat. My dad owned a wood shop. I worked for him for like five billion years. I did everything there, and then as soon as I could, I moved on. But in reality, without that opportunity and that option, I'd probably take over that business, right? For the majority of people, they're just doing the job that they can. They're doing whatever they know how to do. They're doing whatever their dad did. And some people love that, but for some people, it feels worthless. For some people, they're going to work day in and day out saying, what is the point of this job? What about the garbage man, the guy flipping burgers, the person pumping your gas? What about um, the plumber fixing your toilet, the, the girl's... Uh, barista in your coffee, the, the receptionist at the front desk, these jobs that you just say, well, I don't see how this benefits anybody. I mean, how does flipping a burger that's going to make people fat benefit anything, right? That's the question. That's, for me, was the big why that I was like, I have to just chip at this and try to talk through this with these guys because this is where it falls flat. Okay, you're a doctor, you're a missionary, you're a pastor, great. What about the guys that aren't? What about the people that do jobs and don't think they have value? To answer that, I want to take a second and I want to look into history, because I think we could learn a little bit from it, learn a lot from it, actually. The reformers of Christianity back in the 15th, 16th, 17th, even century could teach us a lot about this, because the reformers, the Protestant reformers, had a very high view of the quote-unquote average job. They believed that every job, if done as unto the Lord, was valuable that it was, none of it was meaningless. No matter how small the job, whether it be sweeping a floor, none of it was worthless. All of it was equally valuable, and here's why. The Catholic Church, up until that time, which was the mainstream Christianity for many, many, many years, had a belief that the higher that you got up in vocation would always lead to ministry, okay? So if you're at the pinnacle of vocation, you're doing the ultimate job with the most meaning, then you are a nun, you are a priest, you are a missionary, you are a friar, whatever, you could be in the Catholic Church, that the ultimate vocation was ministry. Then a guy like, named Martin Luther came along, 
And he started to rethink this. He says, think about the logic of that. If everyone is in ministry, then we all starve, right? If everyone's in ministry, then we all starve. There's no houses to live in. There's no clothes on our backs. There's no farmers to farm produce, to raise cattle, for us to eat. There's no government to create infrastructure. There's no law, policemen, military, any of these things that we need to function as a society. And by the way, God cares about society. We talked about it in the, government's, uh, the government series of this, right? God cares about society. God cares about things flowing and working. We saw how he created things in order in Genesis. So if everyone's in ministry and that's the highest vocation, then what about everyone else? How is that important? So they flipped that upside down. They said, no, we believe actually that everything that you do, no matter what the job, no matter what the work situation, it's all valuable. It's all for God's glory if it's done to God's glory, which leveled the playing field. So if you pick corn or you fix toilets or you're a doctor, or you're the president of the United States. It's all necessary, and it's all important. Good theology destroys the concept of meaningless work. It destroys the concept of meaningless work. Think about God himself. God is a spiritual being, and he's also a physical being, right? God does the, uh, the supernatural, and God also does the natural. Okay, let me explain what I mean by that. So God is in heaven, sending his Holy Spirit into rooms all throughout the world or places all throughout the world to do ministry, to convict people's heart to repentance, to save and draw people, right? God is doing all these spirit works right now through the Holy Spirit, but what else is God doing simultaneously? And doing very well, by the way, he's growing grass. He's causing birds to fly. He's causing oxygen to be produced. He's causing dust particles to float through the air. Whatever it may be, God is doing a lot of seemingly meaningless things, but he puts the same amount of attention into them as he does our hearts and the things that he does spiritually. So God himself doesn't seem to put any more emphasis on quote-unquote spiritual things as he does physical things. So why would we do the same thing? Why would we say, yeah, what I do after work matters. I volunteer at a soup kitchen or I do ministry or I volunteer at church, but what I do in my eight hours a day at work doesn't really matter. That's completely absurd. It's completely absurd. It's not how God operates at all. God causes planets to align, to align and flowers to grow. Look at Jesus himself, the ultimate example, right? Jesus came into the earth as a man, God himself. Okay, Jesus had breathed stars. He's the logos. He's the word of God. He was there in the beginning. He was there when we were created. He's done fantastic and amazing spiritual things. He came into the earth. He taught disciples. He brought crowds of thousands. He preached the gospel. He went to the cross to die for our sins, rose from the grave, and he was a carpenter. Do you think that he put any less emphasis when he was making something, a yoke or what may, whatever it might be, than he did when he was with his disciples? I really doubt it. If someone asks Jesus, what do you, what do, you do, Jesus? You probably say, I was a carpenter. So I'm the son of God. No, I'm a carpenter. Now, it wasn't his identity, but that's what he did. And it was part of his life, and it was, to him, obviously just as valuable to support himself in that vocation. Paul was a tent maker, was he not? Do you think Paul put any more emphasis? Do you think that he made horrible tents but did great ministry? No, he probably put equal attention into both because it's all spiritual. If you don't believe me, Romans 12, verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, Paul says, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your, what, spiritual worship. Okay, so presenting your bodies as a living sacrifice to God is your spiritual worship. It doesn't sound very spiritual. So going to work every day and giving of my body to work is a spiritual thing? Yes, it is, no matter what it is. If it's done as unto the Lord, it is a spiritual thing. Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. So Martin Luther, the one that sort of turned this whole thing around, he has a very good quote. Let's throw it up there. It says, the maid who sweeps her kitchen is doing the will of God just as much as the monk who prays. Not because she may sing a Christian hymn as she sweeps, but because God loves clean floors. The Christian shoemaker does his Christian duty not by putting little crosses on the shoes, but by making good shoes because God is interested in good craftsmanship. Isn't that cool? 
So in other words, like, oh, if I need to make shoemaking spiritual, I better put little crosses on there in order to make it spiritual. No, absolutely not. To make it spiritual is to do a good job because God is a creator and God works hard and God does things well. And when you do things well, you bring glory to his name. It's a very cool view of work. It's a very cool work of what is spiritual and what is not. And I think we'd be good to think about it. So if you're still not convinced, Sam, I still don't think my job's worth anything. If you're still not convinced, I want to take one more look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Just for resources as well, uh, I quoted him earlier, John Mark Homer uh, just put out a book that's really a lot of the content I'm going to go through right now called Garden City. It's all about this. So if you want to read more about it, check that out. It's fantastic. Uh, I'm plagiarizing a lot, so all credit due. Uh, Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. And in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. We talked about that in the sex teaching. Uh, if you guys remember that. And fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish and of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This is what's known as, if you're taking notes, the, the cultural mandate. Jeff talked about this when we looked at government. This is the first place that God tells mankind that you are to create society, that you are to cultivate culture and to cultivate creation. The first word he uses is subdue. Okay? He uses the word subdue. Now, the Hebrew word for subdue is kibosh. If you've heard that phrase, put a kibosh on it. Okay? Similar concept. Um, to basically, to take under control, to take ownership of. He says, subdue the earth. Now, this doesn't mean to molest the earth. It doesn't mean to take all the natural resources of the earth. Um, this means to take care of the earth, to subdue the earth, to use the earth in the way it was intended to be used. It means to cultivate, to steward. Just like God started with raw material, he says, here, I'm giving you guys raw material, the garden itself. Go cultivate it. Go make it into something. The second word he uses is dominion. He says, subdue it and have dominion over it. The Hebrew word for that is radah. And this is actually king language. This is king language. He's basically telling Adam and Eve to go rule. Go be kings and queens. Go rule over my creation and partner with me in subduing the earth and making society and making a kingdom, okay? So when you think about your job, do you think of it as slavery? Do you think of it as a necessary evil? Or do you think of it as God describes it biblically to rule? You say my job rules, right? To rule, to rule and reign, to, to take what God has given you to steward and to make something of it. This is not a small thing. This is a huge thing. Think about this. If God's intention was to restore an Edenic state, what I mean by that is that everything's going to be like the garden in the end. We're just going to be hanging out and Jesus is going to be there. Then why in Revelation don't we see a garden? Anybody know what we see? We see a city. Isn't that interesting? We don't see a garden. We see a city. So God's intention was never necessarily that we would be in a garden state, but that we would be in a garden-like city, which is really intriguing, really interesting to think about. Because that means that we're supposed to build cities. That means that we're supposed to build government, that we're supposed to build infrastructure, that we're supposed to have jobs, that we're supposed to make things better that we're supposed to move culture forward. It doesn't mean that, oh, everything culture is bad. We should all go live in mud huts and, and, and read Hebrew, King James Bibles, whatever. No, that's not God's intent. God's intent ultimately and eternally is that we would be a kingdom for him in his place forever. And everything that you do in your life is menial as it seems like is for the kingdom if it is for God. So when you change your kid's diaper and you read them a Bible story and you go to work the next day and you're exhausted, that is kingdom work. And it has value because you're building the city of God forever. Isn't that cool? There's great value in that. What was the first thing that Jesus did when he ascended? He commissioned us again. 
The first commission in the garden was to go and to cultivate the earth and to multiply. The second commission was the great commission. That's where he said to go make disciples. Now we're bivocational. Now not only do we work jobs, but we also make disciples. And if you could do the two at the same time, that's fantastic. But they're both valuable. They're both commissioned by God. So the question you have to ask yourself is, what kind of ruler am I? How do you rule? Okay, if, if you level the playing field and you say, whatever it is that I do, it's for the kingdom, it's building the kingdom, am I doing it the best that I possibly can? So I want to look again at that quote now that we've talked. Dr. Gary Beshears, work is the gracious expression of Yahweh's creative energy and the service of others to create shalom. Does that make a little more sense now? God is using work as his hands to create eternal peace and an eternal kingdom forever through you and I every day every second. Nothing is meaningless. Nothing is pointless. Now, a lot of you guys might be thinking, well, maybe I need to change my vocation. <laughs> maybe I need to do a job that's more valuable. And, and that may be true, and I would encourage you guys, because I, I did the same thing. I said, I, I think I could be doing something with the skill set I have that, that feels more of a calling for me, and I did that, so I'm doing ministry now. But I would encourage you that sometimes it's not simply a vocation change as much as it is an intention change. It may not be a vocation change that you meet, need. It actually could be a voc- or an intention change. I had a conversation about work this week with one of my best friends, Mike, and he works at the mill. He goes, he plays worship with me up here, and he works at, uh, at Boise, and he, he uh, is one of the supervisors. He's over, this, over a lot of the safety aspects of the mill, and I said, you know, Mike, like, how do you feel about your job? you find fulfillment in it? I mean, do you like it? And I loved his answer. It was really good. And it nailed this for me. And he said, I don't really care about wood. <laughs> I, could, I could care less about cedar and wood and, and pulling chain and all these different things. He said, but I do care about people. I have a passion for people, keeping people safe. So my job is just a means by which to do that. So here's a guy that says, I mean, I, don't, I doubt he'll be there forever, but here's a guy that says, you know what, this isn't something I'm necessarily interested in. But I don't need to change my vocation per se. I need to change my intention. I need to change why I'm there. He's not there to make wood necessarily. He's not there to, to, to make plywood per se. He's there because he has a passion for people. And guess what? There's people there. I think it's rad. C.S. Lewis said this. He said, The work of a Beethoven and the work of a housemaid become spiritual on precisely the same condition. That of being offered to God of being done humbly as to the Lord. This does not, of course, mean that it is for anyone a mere toss-up whether he should sweep rooms or compose symphonies. A mole must dig to the glory of God, and a cock must crow. Whatever we do, it is our job to say, this is what I've been given, and I'm going to do this to the glory of God, for the glory of God. And let me say this, you, will never, you may never see how valuable what you're doing is, but you will see it in heaven. And you will see it when the eternal kingdom is established and the eternal king is on his throne and all things are fixed. You can say, ah, that was valuable. That thing that I thought was a waste of my life was valuable. Make sense? I have to close with two quick things. This throws a wrench in the flow of my sermon, but there was two things that I just, I I have to touch on these things. The first one is this, is that work has to be put in its rightful place. I talked a lot about the people that don't like working. But the reality is there's also a lot of people that love working too much. Okay, there's one of two things you can do with work. Two mistakes. The one thing is you can be to undersell it, and that's why I've been talking about to say, ah, work's not valuable, it's a waste of time. The other thing you can do is to fall off the other side of the horse and to say, work is my identity. Work is who I am. Work is what I give everything to, and there's a lot of people around us that do that. There's a lot of people in this room probably that struggle with that. For me, that's more what I wrestle with. I I need to stop working sometimes, not find identity in what I do, not find my identity in what I create. Our culture is obsessed with finding identity in our position. What's the first thing people ask you when you meet them? My buddy and I were talking about this today. What's the first thing they ask you? What do you do, right? It's It's like our identity... Thing. So, oh, oh, you work, oh, okay. All we ever ask is what each other do, and that's just natural. I do the same thing. But the reality is, is that for so many people, our identity is entirely wrapped up, not in who we are, not what Christ has done, but more so in what we do and what we create, and that's equally dangerous. 
gospel-centered work is not about boosting yourself up the corporate ladder to get to the point where you're all that matters and you're the most important thing. Gospel-centered work is I go to work for other people. I have two fantastic examples of this in my life, and they're both my dads, my father-in-law and my dad. They both own businesses. They both love people. They both have loved people very well through their business. They've brought justice in many ways to their cities. They've brought good jobs, and they've kept it balanced. And for me, that's a fantastic example of someone that says, this is a job. This isn't who I am. But I am here to make a difference with this, and I am here to bring good jobs for people. The second thing I just want to talk about in closing, and I can't not say this because it's so much there, is Sabbath. It's Sabbath. Genesis 2, it says, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. Okay? God rested, not because he was tired, mind you. God rested because he wanted to model for us what we would need to do, and that is to rest. This is equally important with work. If you don't know how to work, you don't know how to rest. If you don't know how to rest, you don't know how to work. They're connected. They're joined. Some people don't know how to not work. Okay? This is like the worst invention in the history of mankind for not working. I mean, it's everywhere. I was supposed to have a lunch meeting today at 1. It got put back, pushed back to 1.45, so I sat and worked right where I was at. Work for 45 minutes. Normally, I would be like, well, I'm not in my office, so I'm going to take a nap. Or whatever. No, I worked for 45 minutes because my phone is right there. We have to learn. I have to learn for sure, and the witness of my wife is here. I have to learn how to turn my phone off. We have to learn how to rest. But let me say this. The harder that we work, the more that we put into work, the better and the sweeter that rest is, isn't it? I mean, the better and the sweeter that rest is. Just three quick things on why God created Sabbath, and we're done. Number one, Sabbath is a reminder that we're not only created to work, but that we're created to enjoy God. Sabbath isn't just about resting and catching your breath. If you look at Sabbath and what the Jews do and how God designed it and what it says in Exodus and what it says in Genesis, the, the, really the heartbeat of Sabbath is not just resting, it's exalting God. It's enjoying God. It's soaking in God. It's being with God. It's about taking a minute to enjoy Him and to enjoy what He's created. Okay? So Sabbath isn't just a rest from work. It's a time to enjoy God. Secondly, Sabbath is a reminder that we are not God. That we get tired. That we need a break. That we have to catch our breath. And then lastly, and this is the most important, gospel, the gospel does not start with work, but it actually starts with rest. Do you know that? The gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, does not start with what I do. It actually starts with rest. So for the Christian, we need to actually learn how to rest in Christ and to give our identity to him and to give our work to him and to give who we are to him before we can actually learn to work. Pastor John out at Applegate says, it's not faith by works, it's faith that works. That's so good. It's not faith by works, it's faith that works. We work because of our faith. We work because we rest in the gospel. We go out and we do social justice and we build God's kingdom because we have rest in the gospel of Christ. Amen? All right. Did I save any time? Yeah, we got plenty of time. Sweet. Um, I'm going to pray that in and then we're going to do some questions. Father, I just pray that what was just said would be um, important uh, where it needs to be important. If something was wrong. I pray we just forget it, Lord, but I pray that whatever might be true for us, Lord, and, and the gospel would just sink into our hearts. Um, and God, I pray as we turn to questions and answers that, that Lord, you would just bring good conversation uh, in this room. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, did we get any? We got two questions. Fantastic. Let's do it. No idea. Okay, next question. I was kidding. Um, no, I really don't know, though. Uh, I could guess. You guys want me to guess? Um, I think it's going to look a lot like what it is now. It's just not going to stink. I don't know. I, I, think, I think it's not going to be so hard. I think, I think we're going to be doing a lot of things. I think um, this is all I think, okay? I think, I think, I think. I think that there's still going to be cultural needs. I think we're still going to have 
um, people ruling and reigning. It says we're going to rule and reign, and, and, and that the, the, the church itself will actually be in positions uh, of authority and things like that in, in the millennium, which is cool. Um, I think we're going to be doing a lot of similar things, but I don't think that we're ever going to hate it because Jesus is all satisfying, and he's there in the midst of us. He's the sun, right? We don't need the sun because he's in the middle of us. So whatever we do, it's going to be awesome. But I, okay, if I could just get like, just dream for a minute here. Okay, infinite and endless creativity. Infinite and endless resources. Like think about being the artist who has billions of new colors that he's never even seen before because God is there and he's not limited by the sins, by the fi- being finite and living in a sinful world. So you're, if, in, if you're an artist, you have more colors. If you're an architect, you have more building supplies. I mean, how cool is that gonna be? We are gonna have infinite amount of creativity and, and different things to work with and I don't know, God's eternal. Primarily what we're gonna be doing is exploring him and maybe that's through work, I don't know. God's eternal, he's big, he's vast and forever we will be satisfied in figuring out how big he is and I think work could be a big part of that. Next one, this one looks longer. What do you think about the contrast between vocational success as defined in the Old versus New Testament? Is that one question? For example, Abraham was a very wealthy, successful man of faith with an abundance of possessions versus the heroes of the faith spoken of in the New Testament who abandoned what would be considerable comfort and prosperity for a wholehearted pursuit of ministry. Where should our efforts today be expanded? Both are examples that God himself esteemed. Yeah, I think that's the beauty, and I may not be answering this correctly, but I think that's the beauty of being a Christian is that none of us are gonna live it out the same way. You know, we have so many examples in the Old Testament that we could look at. In fact, I wish I had more time because when it comes to vocation, you have Daniel, you have Joseph, um, you have, yes, Abraham, you have uh, Daniel and Joseph specifically were great men of power and influence, and affluence uh, that worked for secular government, the Egyptians, uh, the Babylonians. It's really interesting. Um, so no Christian really is going to have two of the same things, but I think the beauty is that God has put each of us in specific roles for specific things um, to do exactly what he might have called us to do. I don't know, I feel like there's three questions in here, so um, where should our efforts today be expanded? Both are examples of God himself esteemed. Yeah, I hope that answers it because I'm, I'm a little fuzzy. So I think that, that each of us are, um, are called to work with what we have. In the, in the, in the New Testament, Jesus um, gives the, the parable of the talents and everyone had different amounts of talents and everyone did different things with those talents and everyone's accountable for their talents. So whether that be um, a vocation that's successful um, or whether that be um, something we see in the New Testament, um, whatever it may be, I feel like I might be missing it. If, if this is the question and I'm totally missing it, will you guys come, will come talk to me afterwards? I'd love to understand better kind of what we were saying. But let's pray this in. Uh, any last questions? We good? My mouth's dry, so I'm gonna go home and take a nap. All right. Lord, I uh, thank you so much for Heritage. It's such a joy to get up here and to get to talk about things uh, of the word and the scripture and life and understand um, just the life that we live through the the lens of the gospel. Lord, I'm excited for heaven. Just talking about it, I get pumped. Lord, I'm just excited to create with you there in heaven with the the absence of sin and with not having to feel insecurity and and, uh, not having to feel the idolatry that we constantly struggle with, Lord. I'm excited, uh, Father, to to work with you forever and eternity. God, I pray you would help us to see value in what we do, um, every little thing, Lord, whether it's being a stay-at-home mom and raising and cultivating children um, and shepherding their hearts or whether it be scrubbing toilets, whatever it is, God, give value in our hearts to those and may we be content, um, not just because of what we do and that we're made to do it, but because you are great and you are enough. And I pray that over these um, here tonight, Lord. We just uh, love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Cool, guys. We're a little early, but you can go watch your kids play Fortnite.